Welcome to the Center for Grassland Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Margo McKendry, Program Coordinator for the Center. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Martha Mamo, Department Head in Agronomy and Horticulture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Our topic is Soil Carbon and Nitrogen Dynamics. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Mamo. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Margo. Now, much of the research you've conducted on grassland soil carbon and nitrogen has been on Sandhills wet meadows. Could you describe a Sandhills meadow, especially as it relates to soil carbon and nitrogen content and dynamics, please? Absolutely. I think it would be important for me to briefly describe the Sandhills meadows. Although they don't constitute a large percentage of the sandhills, they are highly productive part of the sandhills. Meadows are typically found in low-lying areas of the sandhills, typically less than 3% slope. Because they are in these positions, water table can be within two to four feet of the soil surface. What that does then in these settings, you know, as we call it sub-irrigated meadows, because of the availability of water, then plant productivity uh, tends to be high. Some of these meadow areas can also be seasonally wet or poorly drained. And so that creates uh, an issue related to how carbon and nitrogen is cycled in these locations. The meadows can range from 60 to 90 percent sand. Um, They would be typically sandy loam, so they have a high percentage of sand content in them, although it would be spatially variable. So some part of the meadows, you may have more sand than other parts of the meadows. So that then creates differences in surface horizon organic matter content, but the wetness also creates some additional slowdown of plant decaying, creating mucks or higher organic matter content. So, you know, the, the accumulation of plant material over time gets added in the decay of grass roots and above ground litter creates the environment in combination with the moisture to create organic matter. There are multiple factors that affect carbon dynamics in this setting. Of course, I want to mention a few of them here. Climate is critical in terms of rainfall and temperatures and radiation as well as drivers of both plant productivity, but also decomposition of dead organic material um, in the environment. So that's influencing soil moisture and soil temperature which are key factors for decomposition of uh, organic matter. Soil properties uh, has an overriding effect in terms of the chemical, physical, and biological properties of the soil itself. In this situation, as I mentioned, um, there's a, a high sand content, but that sand content is variable across the meadow landscape. An important factor in carbon dynamics in this setting is the plant properties, and that is Uh, the amount of carbon input from roots and above ground litter, Um, nitrogen content of the plant material, um, since that is an essential, and we'll talk about that in a bit, and then the composition of the plants. So the chemical composition of the plants as a factor influencing carbon dynamics. And then finally, um, management, and that's the frequency, intensity, timing, and duration of grazing all influence uh, the carbon and nitrogen dynamic in this setting. Because of the water uh, variably, spatially distributed across the landscape, 
the sand content being different across the landscape. Organic matter in the meadows can range less than 1% to as high as 10%, especially in and frequently wet meadow areas. Because the meadows, and in fact, mostly the sandhills are low input system, carbon accumulation and carbon content plant input are very critical for nutrient cycling because that then provides the nutrient essential for plant and grass development and growth and productivity. Now, you mentioned nitrogen dynamic a little bit, but when studying soil dynamics, why is soil nitrogen also considered? Let me say that nitrogen is is an essential nutrient for living organisms. Um, So that includes plants that are found in the sand hills and soil microbes as is essential part of their uh, nutrients necessary for plants and microbes to build tissues. So, and for the productivity. In plants and in living organisms, nitrogen is primarily found in the organic form, but it is taken up from the soil by plants as inorganic nitrogen, and uh, that could be ammonium or nitrate. But then through plant processes, metabolism, that nitrogen is converted in organic form. As as plants die and animals die and they are decomposed um, in the soil, carbon dioxide is released uh, or respired. Not only carbon is released back into the atmosphere, but elemental nutrients are released back into the system. So that's where nitrogen is released as decomposition or decay of plant materials or animal materials occurs in the soil. Uh, nitrogen and other nutrients are released, and then they are consumed back by living organisms. So what I just described, in essence, is a simplified form of nutrient cycling. So the nitrogen is sequestered in the carbon plant material. The plant material decomposes. That decomposition process releases nitrogen. That nitrogen that is released, it's consumed back by living organisms, microbes, and plants. Because the system is dependent on nutrient cycling, uh, nitrogen decomposition is really key for releasing that nitrogen that's locked in the plant material and making it back available to the growing, living, active plants. We can say the higher the soil organic matter, the higher the nitrogen content in the soil. Now, how much nitrogen is released, when it is released, is solely dependent on the factors that I mentioned uh, in your previous question, that is temperature and moisture, the soil properties, the inherent properties of the plant materials, the amount of plant materials, dead materials, roots that is incorporated, and the management component influences the amount and the timing of the nitrogen being released back into the soil in a form that would be usable again by plants. Now you've mentioned soil organic matter and you've touched on some aspects of that, but what are the sources of most of soil organic matter in grassland soils? That's a great question. So plants, both above ground and below ground roots, uh, make up the large proportion of carbon input into the system that would eventually decompose and form soil organic matter. Um, recall that all the input that we place in the soil is not stored in the soil. Some of it is consumed and respired because the energy is required for microorganisms, so they would use that energy uh, and in the process release carbon dioxide back into the system, decaying that material. 
So the large proportion of the carbon input comes from roots and above ground litter. Other components that are very essential also in terms of serving as carbon input include what we call root deposition or rhizodeposition or root exudates. Soil microbes themselves constitute a fraction of the soil organic matter. And then in a system where grazing occurs, as in the sandhills meadows, the waste of the uh, grazing animals, that is dung and urine become part of the carbon source that enters the system and eventually decomposes. Some of it is stored and some of it is respired back into the atmosphere. Now, how and in what forms is carbon stored or sequestered in grassland soils, especially in the soils of sub-irrigated meadows? That's a great question. So I, I talked about the different sources of carbon input into the soil, right? Plants and roots and above ground being primary input sources. Then what happens to that? You have the soil microbes that are the key players in and breaking down that dead plant material, whether it be roots or above ground dead material or litter. Those plants and roots become fragments in different stages of decomposition. So uh, they are stages of decomposition. We can collectively call them particulate organic material. Uh, they are still plant fragments in stages of decomposition. The particulate organic matter can be loose or it can be embedded in aggregates. So soils, you know, the sand, silt, and clay influence how much aggregation occurs, aggregation being that the conglomeration of the sand and silt together. So the, the particulate matter can be glued in those aggregates, and these aggregates can vary in size. So that's one way that the carbon is stored. So the aggregates, particulate matter can be uh, embedded in aggregates, and aggregates are a conglomeration of sand, silt, and clay, and microbial sloughing that really glue things together. And then the other way that carbon is stored, and this is the more stable carbon form, it is really associated with clay and, and silt, the, the smallest mineral fraction in the soil, silt and clay. Uh, so the carbon can be linked to those mineral components, and they are more stable as they are linked. So they are mineral associated carbon um, and can be stored in the soil for a longer period of time compared to say, particular, loose particulate matter, uh, plant matter, or plant matter that is uh, integrated in aggregates. So these are the ways the carbon may be stored in the soil. One thing that I didn't talk about, you also have dissolved organic carbon that could be um, moving from plant matters into the soil, and, and that dissolved organic carbon can also move with depth. Um, so depending on the condition, you, you can have all these different forms. Now, in the meadows, we don't have a large proportion of clay in the soil. We have a lot of litter deposition. So particular organic matter can be high and in aggregates um, can be high compared to carbon associated with clay and silt fraction, which is the stable form of carbon that could be store, stored in a relatively longer period of time in the, in the system. Now, does a grazing system with its associated levels of trampling affect the incorporation and the levels of soil organic matter? When grazing occurs, you have a proportion of the above ground biomass that is trampled, right? Uh, that trampled material uh, eventually becomes part of the litter, right? 
What we don't know is the, the timing of when that trampled vegetation actually gets incorporated into the soil. So um, you've got a physical separation where the litter is at the surface um, and you have a good majority of your biological activity occurring within the surface of the soil. So there's one, you've got surface residue, right? The litter decomposition, the litter is at the surface. So what trampling does, it increases the amount of potential carbon input compared to no grazing at all, because you have now, by a physical movement of the grazing animals, trampling that vegetation and increasing the potential amount of plant input into the soil system. Now, in our study, we looked at how much compared um, more intense grazing, um, stocking density relative to a more conventional rotational grazing system over a, an eight-year period. The organic matter content across the meadows was highly variable, especially in the surface depth. And that's partly because you've got different amount of litter uh, being deposited on the soil surface. So that creates some variability uh, because you've got proportion of plant fragments that are in different stages of decomposition. Uh, some may be intact. So that creates some variability across the meadows. But what we see, even though we have on the average 75% sand and 10% clay for soil that has a relatively high sand content, the surface uh, zero to four inches contains about 3% carbon and below uh, surface four to eight inches, uh, less than 1%. Now, as you go below that or four inches, then the sand content increases. Um, so we have less than 1% organic matter content, organic carbon content in that. So what, what trampling does is just basically increases the input that I talked about earlier. The amount of plant-derived input increases because you have vegetation that is being trampled as animals graze. Now, dung beetles are common on sub-irrigated meadows. How does dung beetle activity affect dung pat decomposition nutrient cycling, and greenhouse gas emissions on grazed grasslands. Yeah, Margo, um, let me make sure that, um, you know, I'm a soil scientist, so I'm not an entomologist, but I'll, I'll talk about uh, why dung beetles are important in, in general for nutrient cycling. We talked about soil organisms. You also have fauna like dung beetles that are important for the decomposition of especially dung in, in grazed systems. So uh, dung beetles, um, there are different kind of dung beetles, some who would tunnel into the dung, some who would take the roll the material out and, and take it and bury it. Um, some are tunneling, so go deeper below the dung and consume the dung that they have taken down uh, into the soil. So dung beetles are part of the biological system that enhance decomposition. So in, in the study that we have conducted in the meadows, dung beetles overall enhanced carbon dioxide emission from the dung pads. That means they're enhancing decomposition. They are creating the right environment for the other organisms, bacteria and fungi to decompose the dung. They aerate because they're creating tunnels. On the other hand, also that tunneling might create drying of the dung, which limits then decomposition. As I talked, moisture is very critical for the process of decomposition. 
So we did see an enhanced CO2 emission from uh, the presence of dung beetles, but we didn't see any consistent effect of dung beetles on nitrous oxide emission from dung. Um, and then, as I mentioned, soil moisture and temperature had a significant effect on, on greenhouse gas emission. The other thing I want to mention, right at the surface where the dung is sitting, right at the soil surface, is where you get a lot of nutrient deposition. So you get increases in nitrogen material or nitrogen uh, in the soil, which would really maintain right at the first zero to four inches depth. That interaction is really at that shallow soil level, and we didn't see any effect of dung and dung beetle interaction below the four inch uh, soil depth. Very good. Now, is there anything else you'd like to add about this topic before we get ready to close out this episode? Yeah, I I think um, overall, the sandhills themselves are stable environment um, in terms of um, maintaining a vast grassland ecosystem. I think as we talk a lot about soil health, Uh, soil ecosystem services, uh, the interaction of soil um, and plants. So that interaction is really critical. And the management we place in those systems will really influence the organic matter content of the soil, maintaining the organic matter content, increasing the organic matter content. So I would say this is a really a critical topic as we talk about soil health and organic matter and organic carbon being really a central part of the soil health concept. Again, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. I do appreciate it. Dr. Mamo will be giving a November 29 presentation entitled Soil Carbon and Nitrogen Dynamics on Sandhills Wet Meadows as part of the Center's Fall Seminar Series. To learn more about the series and how you may participate, Go to grassland.unl.edu. Thank you for listening.